Welcome to Learning English, a daily 30-minute program from the Voice of America. I'm Pete Musto. And I'm Dorothy Gundy. This program is aimed at English learners, so we speak a little slower and we use words and phrases especially written for people learning English. Today on the program, you will hear stories from Ana Mateo, Jonathan Evans, and Steve Ember. But first, this report. The worldwide coronavirus pandemic is affecting nearly every area of modern life, and that includes higher education. Many colleges and universities around the world have closed. Hundreds of schools in the United States have moved their classes online. But that represents only a short-term change. Now, higher education officials are starting to consider changes to the way they admit students. Some of these changes are likely to take effect when the traditional school year begins in the fall. Robert Massa is a former admissions official from Johns Hopkins University and Dickinson College. He also teaches about higher education at the University of Southern California. Massa offered several predictions for the future of the college admissions process on the website The Conversation. Traditionally, High school students apply to several colleges or universities to improve their chances of getting accepted by one they like. Schools usually send out their acceptance and rejection letters in the early spring. If they accept a student, schools usually expect an answer from the student saying whether or not they will study there by May 1st. But Massa notes that a growing number of schools are now waiting until June 1st for students to make their choice. Highly selective schools, such as the eight well-known private universities called the Ivy League, get far more applicants than they can admit. So, they and other schools create what is called a wait list. This list includes all the students who have not been admitted, but who officials still believe might make good candidates for their school. Normally, if a university admits a student who decides to study at another school, students on the waitlist are offered admission based on their place on that list. But Massa points to a March opinion study by the Art and Science Group showing that as many as one-fifth of American students would choose a less costly college over their first-choice school. In addition, 35% said they would choose a college or university that is closer to their home. Massa suggests that these findings, combined with uncertainty about the attendance of international students, means more students on waitlists will likely be admitted. 
The financial effects of the pandemic are something American colleges and universities are giving a lot of thought to, he said. Many worry that if the pandemic leads to an economic recession, as many experts predict, Americans will choose not to spend as much money on higher education. So, Massa believes some schools will offer more financial aid to students in order to make their programs more appealing. Last year, the Department of Justice changed rules on how schools can compete over applicants. It decided that even if a student has signed an agreement with one school, that student can choose to attend a different school if the second school offers greater financial aid. The country's possible economic troubles could also affect need-based financial aid, such as the federal government's Pell Grant program, Massa said. The amount of this kind of aid is mostly based on how much money a student's family earns in a year. If a student's parents get sick and cannot work or lose their job either completely or temporarily, this may affect how much need-based aid the student will receive. Massa predicts the final major change to the admissions process will mainly affect students who have not yet begun to apply. Most college counselors advise high schoolers to visit the colleges and universities they are considering in person. This includes meeting with the school's financial aid and admissions officials. However, this may not be a possibility with campuses closing. So more schools will likely offer virtual tours to students online. No matter what changes do come, Massa noted that life will return to some level of normality in time. So he urges students and their families to make their college decisions carefully. I'm Pete Musto. And now, words and their stories from VOA Learning English. If you are feeling nervous or stressed, a simple thing can help. A deep breath. <sighs> deep breathing can calm your nerves and lower the chemicals in your body that can lead to stress. If one of your friends is stressed, you can calmly tell them, try to take a deep breath. We sometimes describe these as deep cleansing breaths. A long deep breath feels as if it is cleaning out your body. American English has some expressions that use breath or breathing in them. One expression is breathing room. This may sound like a room used especially for breathing, but it is not. Breathing room gives you time or space to do something, finish something, or get relief from something. It is what the online dictionary Merriam-Webster defines as 
a buffer of time, space, or money that allows for freedom of movement or relief from a given source of pressure or stress. So time, space, and money can all give us breathing room. First, here is an example related to time. If you have a big work project or school project that is due in one month, you should start immediately if you can. This will give you some breathing room. If something goes wrong, you will have time to deal with it. Or if something fun comes up, like a party, you will have enough breathing room to be able to enjoy yourself. If you wait until the very last minute to start your project, you have no breathing room, and that can cause you to feel very stressed. Now let's talk about how money can give you breathing room. When a country experiences a recession or depression, people who live paycheck to paycheck may find themselves in a tough situation. Living paycheck to paycheck means you have little money in savings. You need your next paycheck to pay your bills. However, if you have some money put aside, you might feel less stressed. For example, having enough money in the bank to pay six months of your rent would give you some breathing room if the economy took a turn for the worse. Sometimes, breathing room refers to actual space around you. For example, let's say you witness a car crash. The driver struggles to get out of the car as people gather around to see if he is okay. You step in to make sure there is enough space between the injured driver and the crowd of people. Step back, step back, give him some breathing room, you shout. Here is another example. Let's say you must stay at home because of bad weather, or because of an illness, or because a new virus has turned into a pandemic and is forcing the world inside on a stay-at-home order. You may find that after a few days, or even weeks, you need more breathing room. In other words, you feel like you need more space, away from those you live with. So you can think of it this way. Breathing room reduces stress. It gives you the time, money, or space to get something done, or to just feel relaxed. And that brings us to the end of this Words and Their Stories. Until next time, I'm Ana Mateo. The economic effects of the coronavirus could push around half a billion people into poverty, Oxfam said this week. The report was released by the Nairobi-based charity ahead of next week's International Monetary Fund World Bank yearly meeting.
The economic crisis is deeper than the 2008 global financial crisis, the report said. The estimates show that global poverty could increase for the first time since 1990, it said, adding that some countries could return to poverty levels last seen 30 years ago. The report examined several possible economic outcomes based on the World Bank's measure of poverty. People under extreme poverty live on $1.90 a day or less, and those at a lesser poverty level live on less than $5.50 a day. The most serious outcome would be a 20% decrease in earnings. It would cause 1.2 billion people to live in extreme poverty worldwide. It would also raise the number of people living in poverty to nearly 4 billion. Women are at more risk than men because they are more likely to work in jobs that have little or no protection. Poor people cannot take time off from work or buy food in large amounts the report warned. It also said more than 2 billion people did not get earnings while they are sick. To lessen the effects on poverty, Oxfam suggested a plan that would give money to people and businesses in need. It also called for debt cancellation, more IMF support, and increased aid to poor countries. Oxfam added that additional taxes on wealth, high profits, and some financial tools favored by the wealthy would help raise the money needed. Calls for debt cancellation have increased recently as the COVID-19 pandemic has affected the economy of developing countries around the world. Wealthier countries around the world would need to give at least $2.5 trillion to help developing nations, the report said, adding that wealthier countries have shown they can raise that amount to help their own economies. The United States, for example, recently released a $2.2 trillion spending plan to rescue the country's economy. China, Japan, and some European nations have also passed their own spending measures. The report said, unless developing countries are also able to fight, the crisis will continue and it will inflict even greater harm on all countries, rich and poor. I'm Jonathan Evans. Welcome to The Making of a Nation, American History in VOA Special English. I'm Steve Ember. 1968 was a presidential election year in the United States. It was also one of the saddest and most difficult years in modern American history. The nation was divided by often violent disputes about civil rights and the war in Vietnam. 
President Lyndon Johnson had helped win major civil rights legislation. Yet, he had also greatly expanded American involvement in the war in Vietnam. By early 1968, it was almost impossible for him to leave the White House without facing anti-war protesters. Johnson wanted to seek another four-year term as president, but his popularity kept dropping as the war continued. He understood that he no longer had the support of a majority of the people. In March, he announced that he would not be a candidate. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. One reason Johnson decided not to seek re-election was a senator from Minnesota, Eugene McCarthy. I intend to enter the Democratic primaries in uh, four states, Wisconsin, Oregon, California, and Nebraska. The decision with reference to Massachusetts and also New Hampshire will be made within the next two or three weeks. McCarthy competed against Johnson in several primary elections. Primaries are held before the political parties hold their presidential nominating conventions. Thousands of college students helped the McCarthy campaign in New Hampshire, the state that traditionally holds the nation's first primary. They told voters that their candidate would try to end the war. My decision to challenge the president's position and the administration's position has been strengthened by recent announcements out of the administration. The evident intention to escalate and to intensify the war in Vietnam. And on the other hand, the absence of any positive indications or suggestions for a compromise or for a negotiated political settlement. Johnson won the New Hampshire primary, but McCarthy received almost 42% of the vote. After McCarthy's success, Senator Robert Kennedy of New York decided to enter the campaign. He was a brother of President John Kennedy, who had been murdered in 1963. Robert Kennedy had served in his brother's administration as Attorney General, the nation's highest law enforcement officer. Many people were pleased when Robert Kennedy announced his decision. They liked his message. He said, I run to seek new policies, policies to end the bloodshed in Vietnam and in our cities, policies to close the gaps that now exist between black and white, between rich and poor, between young and old in this country and around the rest of the world. On April 4, 1968, civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr. was shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. Robert Kennedy informed a largely black audience in Indianapolis, Indiana, of King's death and appealed for calm. What we need in the United States is not division. What we need in the United States is not hatred. What we need in the United States is not violence and lawlessness, but is love and wisdom and compassion toward one another and a feeling of justice 
toward those who still suffer within our country, whether they be white or whether they be black. No words, however, could calm the anger in many black communities. Martin Luther King had peacefully led the civil rights movement. His assassination led to violence in more than 100 cities across America. Hundreds of people were killed or injured. National Guard troops were used to help police end the riots. After the riots, another candidate decided to join the campaign for the Democratic presidential nomination. The new candidate was Vice President Hubert Humphrey. The primary season continued. Eugene McCarthy and Robert Kennedy tried to show voters how different they were. Many voters, however, saw little difference between their positions on major issues. Both men opposed the war in Vietnam. Both supported social reforms and civil rights. Kennedy defeated McCarthy in the primaries of Indiana and Nebraska. McCarthy defeated Kennedy in Oregon. The next big primary was in California. Kennedy said he would withdraw from the campaign if he did not win the primary in that important state. Robert Kennedy won the California primary. My thanks to all of you, and now it's on to Chicago, and let's win there. He might have gone on to win his party's nomination for president. And perhaps he might have even won the presidency, just like his brother, John. But Americans would never know. Senator Kennedy has been shot. Is that possible? Is that possible? Senator Kennedy has been shot. Possibly shot in the head. I am right here. Rayford Johnson has a hold of a man who apparently has fired the shot. He has fired the shot. He still has the gun. The gun is pointed at me right at this moment. Robert Kennedy was shot at the Los Angeles Hotel where he had just given his victory speech after the California primary. He died a few hours later. The man who shot him worked at the hotel. Sirhan Sirhan was a Palestinian refugee. He said he blamed Robert Kennedy for the problems of the Palestinians. America's two major political parties held their nominating conventions in the summer of 1968. The Republicans met first. They gathered in Miami Beach, Florida, and it was soon clear which candidate had the most support. Richard Nixon had been the Republican nominee in 1960. He lost to John Kennedy. Eight years later, Nixon was a strong candidate to win the nomination again. The other candidates were Ronald Reagan, the governor of California, and Nelson Rockefeller, the governor of New York. 
On the first ballot, Nixon received more than twice as many votes as Rockefeller. Reagan was far behind. Most of the delegates then gave their support to Nixon, and he accepted the nomination. Spiro Agnew, the governor of Maryland, became the nominee for vice president. The Democratic convention was very different from the Republican one. The Democrats were the party in power. Protests against the war in Vietnam were aimed at them. Thousands of anti-war protesters gathered in Chicago where the Democratic convention took place. The city's mayor, Richard Daley, ordered the police to deal with them severely. Many of the young protesters were beaten. The federal government later ordered an investigation. The report said the riots in Chicago were a result of the actions of the police themselves. Inside the convention building, the delegates voted for their nominee. They did not choose the candidate who had done so well in the early primaries, Eugene McCarthy. Instead, they chose the more traditional candidate, Hubert Humphrey. Surely we have now learned the lesson that violence breeds counterviolence and it cannot be condoned, whatever the source. The vice presidential candidate was Edmund Muskie, a senator from Maine. In the general election campaign, Nixon and Humphrey both supported American involvement in Vietnam. But both of them also talked about finding ways to end the conflict. And they talked about finding ways to end the social unrest in the United States. Many voters saw little difference between the two candidates. A third candidate in the race was the governor of Alabama, George Wallace. As governor, Wallace opposed federal efforts to end racial separation in the South. He attempted to block the court-ordered registration of two black students at the University of Alabama in 1963. At that time, the university accepted only white students. The two were later admitted under federal protection. Wallace campaigned as the candidate of the American Independent Party. He denounced the federal courts as well as communism and what he called the Eastern Establishment in the United States. Many conservative, working-class Americans agreed with him and supported his campaign. About six weeks before Election Day, public opinion surveys showed that Nixon and Humphrey were very close. Nixon's major problem was his past, he had made enemies during his early political life. Humphrey's major problem 
was his current job as vice president to an increasingly unpopular president. About a month before the election, Humphrey said the United States would halt bombing in North Vietnam. But President Johnson did not give the order until four days before the election. Humphrey later said the delay had damaged his campaign beyond repair. On election day, Richard Nixon won, but not by much in the popular vote. George Wallace won five states and finished a distant third. Nixon would become president. It was a job he had wanted for a long time. I saw many signs in this campaign. Some of them were not friendly. Some were very friendly. Uh, but the one that touched me the most was one that I saw in Deschler, Ohio, at the end of a long day of whistle-stopping. A teenager held up the sign, bring us together. And that will be the great objective of this administration at the outset, to bring the American people together. And it was a presidency that would change America and the world for years to come. And that's our program for today. Listen again tomorrow to learn English through stories from around the world. I'm Pete Musto. And I'm Dorothy Gundy. This is VOA News.